Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cool and cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Jimmy Mulville. Jimmy is the Managing Director of Hattrick Productions, an entertainment company which has grown into one of the UK's leading producers of comedy, drama and entertainment. Indeed, it was a UK pioneer which brought distinct and popular series such as Father Ted, Outnumbered, Phone Jacker and Have I Got News For You to British Screens. Um, Jimmy, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us on the programme today. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. A pleasure for me as well to welcome such a genius as yourself onto the airwaves with us. Um, now, um, absolutely. Well, um, with regards to um, what we normally do at this point in the show, it's we normally dive straight into the subject of leadership and really sure. bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID situation, I think it's appropriate that we approach the discussion from that angle first. Um, with regards to how it's impacted your um, business, Hattrick Productions and the wider TV industry, um, how has it been for you in managing the impact of this pandemic? Well, it was interesting. When it, when it happened, of course, I, I'd just come back from Los Angeles where we are um, growing um, our business. Um, and I make regular trips out there every, every five or six weeks, um, pitching shows to the major American outlets. Um, and during that week, um, I was aware, this is March the 9th, week beginning March the 9th, you may remember, yeah, there was a growing awareness that this thing wasn't going to stay, um, you know, in the East. It was it was going to uh, 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 find its way around the world. And slowly but surely, all my meetings in Los Angeles were moved to out of buildings into restaurants or cafes. And in fact, then on the Skype, and then my final meeting was actually on the phone. I had a phone call, um, mm. a phone pitch meeting, which is not an ideal way to pitch a show. Um, you want to be in the room with people. You want to see their faces. And, and then I came home on the Friday, and on the Monday, I uh, was laid low with the virus. So my 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 introduction to COVID was actually uh, hosting it um, for about a month. Um, I was on my back for about two two weeks, and then spent another couple of weeks getting on my feet. Um, so uh, what happened at, at Hattrick Productions was uh, uh, on the, on that Monday, uh, the sixteenth. I was in work, uh, thinking I had jet lag. I was talking to colleagues. We had a meeting. We had a meeting about how we were going to close the office down because we realized that it was coming. And the government, of course, delayed it until the 23rd of March, which mm-hmm. now we're all professors of hindsight, of course. And uh, we all realized it was a bit late. So we shut the office down that, that week. And we decided that we would go on to this thing called Zoom. I wasn't very familiar with Zoom. I'd heard of it, but I had now I exist on Zoom. It's quite extraordinary the change. I mean, it's try, trying to track where we came from March to to now. I think I'd probably need to just take a step back and have a day off and just draw a timeline of all the different things that have happened in the last six to seven months that we've had to respond to. So we began to set up our teams on Zoom so they could speak to each other, uh, but not 
not actually breathe the same air. And uh, and very very quickly we became quite adept at that. And meetings became quite efficient. You know, I come into my room from which I'm speaking now, and I'd lock myself in here all day, and I go from Zoom call to Zoom call to Zoom call. And of course. Ironically, I could get through more meetings that way because I wasn't having to travel across London or travel to America. I was talking to America now and not having to travel there. And I saw that actually that there's, there are things that, it, that were forced upon us in the pandemic, which I think we'll probably keep going forward. And, and one of them is, you know, if we can pitch our shows to America on Zoom, then certainly it will cut down my international travel and I cut down my carbon footprint, which you know, I, I, I'm... I'm quite keen to do. And um, I think from a programming point of view, of course, what happened was we, we have different kinds of programs at Hattrick. We have shows that, you, that you've mentioned, um, our studio-based shows, like Have I Got News For You? So we thought, well, that will definitely uh, not be able to be produced. And then we thought, well, we have shows like Derry Girls, which are the comedies that are shot on location. We have a drama. We have a drama company with a man called Jed Mercurio called Hattrick Mercurio, which um, Jed, of course, wrote Bodyguard and Line of Duty. And we had a big drama set up with Vicky McClure from Line of Duty, which was due to shoot this summer uh, about a female bomb disposal expert, which is an edge of, edge of your seat kind of drama. And that had to be postponed. We had two, three parters for ITV, one about the um, uh, about Stephen Lawrence, um, and that, that had to be uh, postponed. So our big dramas, our big kind of location pieces, it was impossible to shoot because we were in lockdown. So, but the BBC rang up and saved the day, really, and said, uh, we think Have I Got News For You is one of our essential programs. We'd like Have I Got News For You to be on the air during this period so the team on Have I Got News For You can reflect back to us what we're all going through. So we rang up Ian Islop and Paul Merton and explained this to them, how it would happen. Mm. And that's, and I don't know what you saw, but that's, that's how we did it. We did Have I Got News To You without an audience from everybody's home. And uh, it was a bit creaky to begin with, uh, but we got better technically at it. And of course, the great gift that we had at the end of the series, our finale, was that Dominic Cummings needed to test his eyesight. Um, and so that was a gift from God, really, because mm. uh, we could just make it the Dominic Cummings show because the whole audience, were feeling very much as we were feeling, which was, listen, we may know that you've broken the law, but please don't now try and convince us that you didn't. So there's a kind of outrage in the in the country. Remember that that week we were all outraged that we were being taken for mugs because we were being asked to believe something that clearly wasn't true. And that's when the program like Have It News really, really does take off because it is saying things which people have been thinking all week. And on a Friday evening, you can sit there with your with your beer and your pizza and and have a good laugh at all these so-called very important people who've been, you know, um, dictating to us all week. So thank heavens that Have I Got News For You stayed on the air because from obviously from an economical point of view, from a, from a, from a financial point of view, mm. a bottom line perspective at Hattrick, you know, a show like Have I Got News For You is very important to us. And the fact that that was staying on air meant that, that, that we were not going to have a, a, a catastrophic year uh, as other businesses have on I think generally, um, a lot of TV companies have managed to keep one or two shows going. Um, you know, some shows lend themselves, like Gogglebox, for example, is a perfect show because mm. it's a show that has films people watching TV in their own ha- in their own homes. So 
there are um, TV shows that are less susceptible to this crisis than than others. But I think we we've, we've come through it okay. Uh, we're still in business, and I think that what will happen next year is uh, well, we don't know. But if we if we can get back onto location next year, we've already got three or four shows that we couldn't shoot this year. So from again from uh, uh, um, um, from a bottom line point of view, mm. already we're looking quite strong for next year. So I can't complain really, Scott. I can't, I mean, I have friends who, who run uh, organizations in the hospitality sector, which, you know, they've been devastated, absolutely devastated. Yeah, um, um, you know, somebody who has eight um, restaurants, he, he, he runs a very good pizza chain and he's only been able to bring three of them back and, and he's had to make a lot of people redundant. So, you know, as, a, as an industry, I think we've, We've not been as badly damaged as. Um, having said that, of course, we are a freelance um, industry, and I mm. think that yeah, you know, companies are one thing. Our, our freelance community are quite another. And and BAFTA, I know BAFTA ran an emergency fund to which uh, companies like Hattrick contributed because there were there's a whole you know there's a whole army of brilliant freelance people who go from job to job to job to job. And of course, a whole bunch of them are about to be employed by Hattrick and then were stood down because the programs weren't being produced. So um, I did, we did, we did try and reach out and help as many of those as we could. Um, and uh, and I know that the industry at large has has has, has tried to do that too. Um, so there, I'm not saying that there weren't casualties. I'm I'm not saying that it wasn't tough on individuals. But I think as an overall sector, um. I don't think we've been as devastated as others. Uh, and I think that going forward, of course, is that broadcasters, our customers are going to have to help out in terms of COVID, pro- COVID protocols tend to add about 15 to 20% to your budget. And um, now, um, you know, when you're talking about a drama, that's quite a lot of money. And mm. um, so, I, I, you know, I think that maybe there'll be fewer programs made going forward um, and I think the broadcasters will probably be slightly more selective um, there's a huge problem with insurance of course because we couldn't go out onto a set without everybody being insured and we needed to have COVID insurance and you know insurance companies <clears throat> obviously didn't want to be exposed so now the government has stepped in which uh, is music to our ears and has extended the um, um, extended the period to the end of February so if we can start production on shows before the end of February, the government will underwrite the insurance um, for any insurance claims uh, made because of COVID. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's been quite a good good response. Uh, and, uh, and like I said, I think that, 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 that some of the working practices have been interesting that we've, that we've um, you know, that we've discovered and, um, through necessity, which I think we'll probably keep. I don't think, for example, everybody will come to the office every day again. I think mm. even when we can come back, I think we've seen that it, you know, people can work, do work from home. They can work from home, um, if you know, if they're motivated and uh, and they're committed. Then um, there's been no, I've seen no, um, no diminishing of. Um, diligence and excellence at work because people have been forced to be. I think what's happened is people have missed the camaraderie. Um, mm. You know, we 
we started to clamber back into the office, as you know, when the government said, well, you can go back to work now. So we worked out a, a roster with a rather brilliant director of operations, Kate Wilson, who um, worked out with her team, a roster of people um, who could come back at any given time. I think it's between 25 and 30% of the establishment could come back into the offices, which had perspex screens up and one-way systems, so you didn't bump into each other. Um, and we have uh, modern air conditioning, which sucks out stale air and pushes in fresh air. And of course, then had a, two weeks ago, the government said, oh, don't go back to work now uh, unless you really need to. Mm. So we had a meeting, and I asked them to, to, to find what they meant by need. What did we all think when we thought about why do I need to go to work? And of course, most people said, well, practically, you know, if we're producing, have I got news for you, which we are at the moment, we all need to be in the same building because of the transmission of information in such a quick turnaround show. You need to have people on hand, handing people bits of paper and stuff like that. Um, and I said, well, what about other needs? What about your emotional need? What about your well-being need, your mental health need? And people agreed that actually this is a really important need. I said, well, where would you put your need for mental health on a list of priorities? And people put it at the top because if you don't have your mental health, you can't do your job. So we've actually we've said to people, if you feel the need to come to work because you want to see your colleagues at a safe distance, but just see them and have that interpersonal contact with each other and feel as though you do work for a company that has a culture, and there is a camaraderie that goes beyond just the function of your job, then come to work. Uh, and we'll protect you while you're at work, and you try and get to work as safely as possible and take personal responsibility for that. And I do think that people need to think more and more per personal. I do worry that you know the government is trying to prevent um, death in all of its forms. Mm. It, it's, a, it, it's not going to work. I think we need to give people the full information and let, let people as people always have done up until this point, actually, people have been given information and said, right, now you take the, people know the risks about smoking, but no one's prohibited from smoking. So the point I'm making is that, you know, that I think that if this thing is going to be around for the next year, I think we're going to have to learn to live with it. And mm -hmm. I don't think we can just, you know, we can't just hide away from it. I think the national lockdown, um, strategy is a foolish one. I think we should, the thing is, it needs to be more targeted. I heard today that Wales is locked down. I had a Conservative MP. Um, and, and by the way, I'm, I'm not a Conservative. Um, I won't tell you how I vote, but I'm, I don't vote Conservative. And um, uh, but she made a good point. She, that she represents parts of Powys that have very, very little transmission. They had 12 cases yesterday. Whereas, you know, in Cardiff and Swansea, it's quite high. Why, why aren't we being more targeted? But that requires resources and, and it re requires smarts and it requires actually the government giving more and more decentralized discretion and power to regions. And of course, there seems to be a, an unwillingness to do that. So mm. it's going to be interesting, I think, when, when we all shake down whether we'll become a more regional country than we were before, whether the regions themselves and local mayors will have more discretion and more power and, and and more status because of this pandemic because it's not it's not all going to be some of the outcomes are going to be I think for the better um, uh, but yeah, anyway that was a long answer to your question um, mm. we've 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 survived it okay and I think that we've learned some very valuable lessons about how we work 
um, which I think we'll probably retain going forward. And um, you mentioned as well um, the fact that the impact of the pandemic could certainly see less programmes being made in future. So with that in mind and with us all staying at home during this time as a result of lockdown, can you see streaming becoming an even bigger part of the industry in the months and years to come? Well, I can see that you know the BBC and ITV will move towards the, uh, to 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 they'll put start to more emphasis on their online on BBC iPlayer, ITV Hub. You know there will be more emphasis. I mean, I, I read today that ITV are going to restructure their commissioning, so there'll be more commissioning for the Hub and for the linear channel because you know at the, at the moment, um, ITV you would argue that ITV and BBC One are linear. Channels we know they mm. they there's a kind of you know there's a, there's this old school feel about them, and I think that um, what's going to happen now is over the next five to ten years that both organisations will become much more uh, uh, Netflix light in, in a way. I, I don't mean that disparagingly. I think Netflix is the kind of behemoth. It's the brand leader in this area. Uh, but I think you know if you look at America now. Um, Everybody's got their own streaming video. HBO Max, you know, Peacock, uh, the the NBC and Comcast one. Uh, you've got Hulu. Uh, you have obviously Netflix, Amazon, Apple. So there are about a half a dozen now major streaming platforms in America, and no one talks too much anymore about NBC, ABC, Fox, CBS. They exist for sure, but they're desperately trying to get themselves involved in a, in, in digital you know, in, in streaming platforms. And I was really pleased um, as well that you mentioned, um, have I got news for you in the fact that that continued to air during this time, because it is um, a show that I've enjoyed for many, many years. And absolutely. And TV, particularly comedy is something that has changed so much over the years, hasn't it? Particularly with the rise of new views over what's deemed appropriate to be ridiculed and satirized political correctness um, as well. Um, Yes. It's a disaster. Yes, I was just about to ask, what are your thoughts on that and how do you think that is still going to change going forward? Well, because it is inevitably going to transform even more. Yes, I mean, I, I just think that, 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 of course, who who wants to make a racist joke? Who wants to make a sexist joke? Who wants to make a joke that, that you know, intentionally offends vulnerable people? Nobody does. But what's happened is, I think there's been a. Uh, I know that the 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 the, 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 the woke, as they're called, and there seems to be a, almost a, a prurient and ins- a kind of insistent desire to seek offence, look for offence everywhere, and to misinterpret what really is going on. For example, if you're doing a comedy and one of the characters in the comedy has fairly right-wing, uh, racist, homophobic views. And we're laughing at that character because he's so ludicrous and he's clearly not on the side of the angels. That doesn't mean the show is racist. It doesn't Mm. mean the writer is racist. It means that what you're doing is you're satirizing a point of view. In order to satirize a point of view, you have to sometimes have that person expounding those, those views. And that's the problem now is that people run for Twitter and, and, and they, they get on social media and they rush to judgment. Rather than you know, applying their intelligence, they, they apply their wounded feelings first and then they go to town. And it's very interesting to me that, 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 that some people who plead 
that they're being victimized come out with the most awful, horrendous uh, bile on Twitter and on other, other social media. Mm-hmm. I just think there's an, unki- there's an unkindness afoot now where, you know, people are being cancelled and, and uh, people's other view isn't being entertained anymore in a way that it used to be. We used to be able to, d- to debate things and I could debate very strongly. I disagreed with your point of view, but also I could actually defend your right to have that point of view. Mm. That is a free society. That's free speech. Now I think we have the thought police and there's a totalitarianism, which sadly I think is coming a lot from the left, um, the, the crazy left as opposed to the where I am, sort of sen- wishy-washy centre-left, um, that, that I think is trying to control the cultural agenda um, in some, I don't know, some vague hope that they one day control the political agenda. I've got no idea. But it does seem to me that a lot of people are frightened now of saying, well, this is just ridiculous. You know, let's apply common sense here. Uh, I think people are worried, that, literally worried about being cancelled and shut down. And I think that's a shame. It's certainly a shame if you're a comedy writer mm. or you're in comedy because comedy often, you know, pokes fun at people. And, and uh, But like I said, nobody I know or work with wants to make a sexist or homophobic or racist joke. And in fact, I think those comedians who do that probably are in the minority. Um, no, I, it is a, I think that, that issue in particular uh, perplexes me more than most is mm. it's the freedom. Of, it's the, just the freedom of speech really. And you know, the idea I say, I've got, I've got, you know, children at university. I say that I think no platforming is odd because when I was at university, we like to get old, Duffers in to come out with their terrible views, so we could attack them. Mm. You know, we would have a uh, we'd have a shouty debate at the union, and we would be, you know, they'd be giving as good as we got, and and that's that isn't that what a democracy is about? And I, I do think there's a kind of a kind of puritanism, which is uh, um, there's a wonderful there's another podcast called the Purity Spiral, which talks about there's a there's a there's a, there's a, there's a uh, an online knitting circle, and the leader of which uh, tried to reach out um, to involve a more diverse community and was accused of being a white supremacist and ended up, at the end of it, actually thinking of taking his own life. He was bullied to that extent that he, he was questioning the fact, you know, the, 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 whether he should be on the planet or not. That's the kind of thing that's, that's happening, is that people are being singled out and bullied and trolled on these um, social media platforms, uh, in the name of we are the oppressed, where where you know we we need to stand up for our rights, which is fine, but stand up for your rights without actually killing other people. Mm. I really anyway, do- that's a bit of a diatribe. Sorry. <laughs> uh, no, no, it's fine. I really do sympathise with your views, though, Jimmy, because cancel culture does seem to be becoming much more of a powerful thing. And I think it is really detrimental to freedom of expression and freedom of speech because people do have to be very, very careful these days and sort of tiptoe around making certain comments because they want yeah. to avoid falling foul of it. In fact, someone you'll know quite well, Graham Linehan, was recently handed a Twitter ban for some things that he said. So it is it yeah. is true, isn't it, that people do have to be very, very careful because of it. And this is where people do need to maybe show a little bit of common sense, leaders as well, and understand yeah. that, look, freedom of expression, freedom of speech is still very, very important. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. But, but, but as I said, I've, I've, never, I've never met or worked with anybody who has wanted to 
in any way uh, oppress a minority. Um, they may have wanted to express their own views, but never, but they've never wanted to, you know, to shut anybody else up. Mm. But it seems that that some some groups on social media, because social media is such a fantastic um, accelerator, it kind of turns the volume up on personal opinion. Suddenly, personal opinion is now published, and um, and it takes on a, a life of its own. And I think that's what's happened. Is there's a kind of um, there's a feeling that a group of people can get somebody famous cancelled for having said something that they don't agree with. And I just find that's an extraordinary phenomenon of the 21st century. I can think of a good example of that, actually. I think it was the actress Jodie Comer, actually, who you may know from uh, things such as yeah, Killing Eve yeah. and uh, Dr. Foster. I believe yeah. she was dating a um, an American Republican, and yeah. um, there was a group of yeah. um, youngsters who, again, uh, cancel culture, rose, reared its ugly head again in that case, and they wanted her removed. And that is, but it's good... the language that you. But it's also the language they use. It's it's vile. I mean, some of the language is hurled at people in the name of, you know defending a right is unacceptable, I think. Is it, you know, why can't we get into a proper debate where we show, you know, just basic human respect to each other and have a debate about our different points of view? Because there is no way, there is no way that everybody's going to agree with everybody about everything. People mm. are different. I mean, let's look at the way things are across Europe and across the United States. And there's such a, there's such a kind of um, animus now there's such a, uh, I mean, I, you know, I blame the political classes. I blame the media. You know, they stoke it. I mean, the media and a lot of politicians, they want to deal in, in extremes where most of us want to live in the middle. Mm. And actually where we're productive, we are in the middle and, and we're getting on with things. Whereas the, you know, politicians and ginger groups and media outlets they they want to create a lot of noise, so they talk about the best and the worst. They talk about extremes, and I think it's I think it, that's been unhelpful. Certainly, the coronavirus. I think the media has been absolutely. They've been despicable. I think the way mm. they've tried to crank up the fear amongst the population. It's been awful. It certainly doesn't do very good for the morale, does it? That I think you're very very right. And thinking about what needs to be done particularly over the uh, the next 12 months just because I am conscious that we're beginning to run short of time yeah. um, we know that it's going to be a little bit of a difficult winter before we can even think about emerging from COVID-19 yeah. as an issue For sure. um, but this time in a year whether or not we do have a working vaccine by then fingers crossed god willing we do um, what would you like to sort of see in terms of where the industry should be heading over this period of time, and indeed, just from on a more simple perspective, where do you would you like Hattrick Productions to be this time in twelve months, and what do you want to have achieved? Well, I mean, always to be in business, um, making interesting shows. That, that, that's what we do. Um, it, it's a simple but difficult uh, job, in that sense. Um, you know, trying to find a good show. Um, I think that. As a company, um, we, we have Hattrick Productions and we have uh, uh, some uh, affiliated companies. We have uh, HTM, which is the company we set up with Jed Mercurio, who, um, as you know, wrote The Bodyguard and Line of Duty. And, and we that's a drama company. And and we, we've we've already sold uh, quite a few shows to uh, American networks, uh, and now they're in development over there. So I hope that this time next year, you know, where in production with two or three big American drama series. Um, I think that, you know, 
COVID has made us all sit in our rooms and talk to people on Zoom, which actually has accelerated that process. The development process in my business has been accelerated by the fact that we can, I can get on a Zoom call with Netflix in the US um, you know, uh, at the flick of the switch and sell a program to them. Whereas in the old days, I'd be climbing, I'd be going down to Heathrow, getting on a plane, booking into a hotel, blah, blah, blah. So uh, I, I hope that we can expand our business in the US. Um, we have a, an international distribution company which it is selling finished programming across the world because that's what people want. They want shows that have been already made so they don't have to make them. So I think there's, 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 there's a, a room for growth uh, in that part of our business. And, and, but, you know, as, a, as an industry, uh, you know, we, we are quite a, a resilient loss. And I think that um, most, in, most people in my sector, the independent production sector, they are as good as their last idea. So I think that, you know, what you'll find is there'll be, there'll be more invention, more creativity. Um, I, I, I'm, I don't see anything. Um, I, I don't see that this is going to cripple our industry. I think that, you know, it'll change. I don't predict the future. Um, I used to go to the Edinburgh Festival where I'd, I'd hear people who'd never made a program in their lives. They were big cheaters in my industry predicting what was going to happen in the next 10 years. But you may remember that at the, in the year 2000, the prediction was that um, the TV was dead and it was all about online and user-generated content. And people would be creating their own content. And, and you know there were people standing up in Edinburgh with ponytails and Canadian accents and telling us all to get other jobs because our industry was finished. Well, guess what? TV became richer and fatter selling its programming to streaming video platforms. And uh, and I don't see TV going away anytime soon. People keep predicting the end of it, but it won't. It won't end. It will mm. change. And, and I think that's a good thing. Exactly, because adaptation, innovation, it is all about that, isn't it? Leadership um, yeah. as a whole is all about that. And um, yeah. honestly, um, Jimmy, just given how enlightening it's actually been hearing your thoughts on the direction the industry is going in, I actually think it would be wonderful to welcome you back onto our programme at some point in the next year and just to see how things to. have changed. Because yeah. um, it's a shame we don't have more time, in fact, because we could discuss this long into the evening, I'm sure. It's been absolutely fantastic having you on today. Good. Well, thank you very much, Scott. It's been a pleasure. It really has. Likewise, Jimmy, I've thoroughly enjoyed your company on the airwaves with us. And most importantly, until we do hopefully get to touch base again, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on in the world as well. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. I'd also like to extend that message to every single one of the listeners tuning into today's podcast. Please do continue to stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it makes such a difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Jimmy Mulville, Managing Director of Hattrick Productions, onto today's programme. And I would like to wish both Jimmy and Hattrick the best of luck in it with its endeavours in America. Thank you very much. Coming up next on today's programme, we're going to be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years and holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership. He was elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015 and I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew Relish the opportunity to speak with him. That is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. 
Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver. Uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's severe illness but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown uh, local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future so i think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods uh, including for instance shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system um, the food chain and the like uh, but also i think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different Prime Ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue all of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially 
in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank really you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.